The scripture reading for this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like you to imagine, if you will, for just a moment, or perhaps not so much imagine as remember, a time in your life when you were, as much as any other time, isolated or lonely. Maybe it was a move. Maybe you moved away from everything that was familiar. Maybe you went off to college. Maybe for whatever reason you were isolated by circumstances that you'd created. I guess I should stop talking and let you remember. <laughs> when you remember or think about that form of isolation, whatever it was. I want to remind you that the form of isolation that the ten people in this story had endured was exponentially greater. These were folks, lepers, as they're called, who had contracted a contagious disease. Not the same kind of leprosy that frequently we hear about today. As a matter of fact, some of the people from our youth group ministered in a leper colony. Um, There was no contagion. It was a different form. But this kind of leprosy apparently was contagious. And when you got this kind of leprosy in first century Palestine, you were completely isolated from everyone and everything except perhaps for a few folks who had the same disease that you did. I have actually thought before, uh, what would it be like to be in such a condition? And I don't suppose my imagination could give me an adequate view of what it would really be like. But I do know this from the history of leprosy in that time. If you had leprosy, you were placed outside the camp, so to speak, outside the town, outside the dwelling of everyone else. You were quarantined. And when, as a leper, you saw people approaching, you had to scream out at the top of your voice, unclean, unclean. To add insult to injury, you knew you couldn't get in close proximity with the folks. You had to announce it out loud, don't come near me. 
You know what else strikes me about leprosy? The one who had leprosy could see everyone else's life right before their eyes. In other words, if you were 35 years old and had children, and it was found that you had leprosy, you could literally stand on a nearby hill and watch the life of your children and your wife and your family, but never go near. Imagine that loneliness, that isolation. Wishing for nothing more than to reach out and be with. And you could not. On this one occasion, Jesus was traveling in the border section between Galilee and Samaria, which was very typical for those who were Jews. He was traveling there and he encountered ten lepers who were isolated from society. Now, traveling in that strip of land meant that it was likely that there would have been some people among those folks who were Samarians. Samarians were a despised group by the Jews, and that's why, routinely, the Jewish traveler always chose to go around Samaria, even though it was a longer way around from the north to the south to Jerusalem. Among those folks, those ten, was one who was a Samaritan. One who was already despised from birth by all the culture around him except his own, now ostracized from the only culture that he knew. And among those, we assume, who were not lepers, excuse me, who were not Samaritans. We assume that because Jesus only identified one as being a Samaritan. There may have been another in the group that were Samaritans, but it's likely that at least some were Jews and some were Samaritans. I think that in itself is interesting. Prejudices have a way of dissolving quickly when you find yourself in desperate situations. When you have no human companionship except those who are ill like you, cultural distinctions are not that important. So they walk together. I've heard, though I've never seen this happen, that uh, you can see this in the natural order of things. When a flood threatens an area, or a flood actually invades an area. Animals will scurry to the highest point instinctively to avoid the flood and stand side by side. Predators who would otherwise destroy other animals, they stand next to each other. There's a common bond because of their desperate situation. And so these folks, both Jew and Samaritan, were together in a common bond of desperation. And they did what you would expect them to do. They kept their distance and then they shouted out to Jesus, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Have pity on us. And Jesus responds in the most curious way, at least it seems to me curious, because on at least one other occasion, he actually walked up to a leper and touched him and healed him. This time, Jesus does something different. He just, without approaching them, says to them, and we can only surmise that he shouted back, 
Go show yourself to the priest. Really? Now, I don't know what was going through their minds. The text doesn't tell us that. But I would imagine since there were ten lepers there, ten people, there were ten different opinions concerning why Jesus said that. (laughs) What they did know is that when they were to present themselves to the priest, it was to present themselves to see whether or not they had a disease. That was part of the cultural order. The priest actually examined the skin. If you take a look in the Old Testament, it was very elaborate, the sore and the way the sore was designed and whether it was shrinking and what it looked like. He would examine each person and declare them clean or unclean. And Jesus said to him, go show yourself to the priest Could they be thinking to themselves, why I already did that? That's why I'm isolated. Why should I do it again? I'm still unclean. That's why I'm shouting out. Why does this man tell me to go to the priest and show myself? I'm not sure what they thought. Maybe they thought he was mocking them. Maybe they thought he was saying... You're not good enough for my healing. Maybe they thought to themselves, hmm, he's challenging our faith. Whatever they thought, the story goes this way. As they're on their way to the priest, it must not have been very far away, just as they turned and began to go, they were healed. Now imagine, will you, with me, what it must have been like? One man walking towards the priest and looking at his hand, and the spot disappears. And he wanted to hope, but he dare not believe, and he looked in his arm, which also was disfigured, had healed up. He looked at his companions and he realized the same was happening to their hands and to their feet and to their arms. And he looked into their face which was discolored by disease and it was whole. I wonder if when the first person did that he shouted out, Look at me! Do I look the same? Am I healed too? As they walked... In command from Jesus, they were healed. And overwhelmed by their healing, nine of them just continued on in a dead heat to show themselves to the priest. But only one, says Jesus, a Samaritan, turned back and fell to Jesus' feet and thanked him. It's a remarkable story. What we know concerning this Samaritan, according to Jesus, is this. When he returned, he not only experienced physical healing, which all the other nine experienced as well. We've got no reason to believe that their physical healing was reversed and they got the disease because they weren't grateful. But only one returned. And to that one, Jesus says, you've received salvation. In other words, he takes it it a step further. You're not only healed, you're healed spiritually. 
you've received salvation. When you look at a story like this, I would imagine, like me, you're thinking to yourself, the major thing is about gratitude, and, and I think we're right about that. And if we're correct that the major theme of this passage is gratefulness towards God, my first series of questions related to that theme is this. What are the inhibitors of gratitude in our lives? What is it in our lives that possibly could make us the nine and not the one? That would be a helpful self-examination, wouldn't it? So let me offer a couple of things you add to the list. It's possible that one of the inhibitors of gratitude is self-sufficiency. I can do it on my own. Thanks already, but I've got it together. Or shall we say another form of that self-righteousness? I don't need help. I'm good enough as it is. Thanks for the offer, but I'll work through it. That's a potential inhibitor of gratitude. In uh, my premarital counseling, I, I frequently will go through a book with young couples and um, it's a book by Tim Keller, who's written a book about marriage, the, the meaning of marriage. He tells an interesting story in that book that one day he and his wife were on a trip and they were close to the seminary where he used to go to school. And on that occasion, he really, really, because he's a bibliophile, really wanted to go to the bookstore. But he thought to himself, no, I'm not going to say a word. I'm just going to be with her. I'm going to help with the kids. I'm going to stay in this vacation. I'm not going to ask to go to the bookstore for two hours. And he bucked up and he didn't say a word and they left and returned home. And then he told his wife about it. As if somehow to get credit, I guess, for not asking. And she completely flew off the handle at him. You know what he, she said? She said, I would love to have given you that gift. And you refused to allow me to. Is it possible that in your life, with others or with God, that is your disposition? I don't need your help. I'm okay. I'm self-sufficient. I'll do it on my own. And God or others are saying to you, will you stop it already? I'd love to give you a good gift. But you've got to be ready to receive it. So potentially, an inhibitor for gratitude is self-sufficiency. Another potential inhibitor to gratitude is all kinds of wealth and prosperity. Any kind. Have you ever noticed that wealth and prosperity doesn't mean that we become more grateful? Have you ever noticed that it doesn't correspond to that? In other words, the more I get, it does not mean the more grateful I am. It frequently means the opposite. So the more we have, it's possible the less grateful we are. More doesn't equal gratitude. Sometimes it's the opposite. 
A third possibility for an inhibitor on gratitude is a sense of entitlement. And this is the opposite of the story I gave of Tim Keller and Kathy, his wife. In this story, in this story, we have a sense of entitlement. We deserve it. Of course, Jesus, you better heal me. Because I deserve to be healed. Of course, you better bless me because I'm good. I'm not like those other folks. And bitterness seeps in because we don't get what we want or what we think we deserve. I can't help but slide in this comment. That's red meat for politicians, isn't it? (laughs) A sense of entitlement. You know why? Because they know us well. They know our culture on both sides. I don't care which side you're on. They know exactly our thoughts. We feel entitled to certain things, and they speak to our entitlements. Because it's deep within us, this sense of entitlement. And that sense of entitlement, I think, affects us spiritually, not just culturally. It can affect our relationship with God. What would you add to the list? Inhibitors for gratitude. There could be a lot of them, right? Go away and think about it. I don't want to end there, of course. I want to suggest that there are some antidotes to ungratefulness. And I think one of those is to remember and pray for those who are less fortunate. Uh, Frequently in written prayers or prayers that have often been said around table in traditional settings you will hear some phrase that says, Lord, we remember those who are less fortunate than us. That somehow is, I think, in large part slipped away. We just pray for ourselves, and sometimes we're grateful and we're thankful and we ask for more, but we forget those who have so little. Remembering those who have so little and praying for those who have so little surely opens the door to the possibility of gratitude, don't you think? I think another thing that's an antidote to ungratefulness would be the activity, and by that I mean our proactive disposition and choice to count our blessings, to actually start listing them. Um, you remember, well, most of you remember the old songs like I do. A few of you don't, but remember that song, Count Your Blessings? Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Surprised? You're the one who counted them. You're surprised because you realize when you count out loud, when you name it, when you say thank you, when you are initiating an attitude of gratitude, you're surprised by what God has done. But you're not surprised until you initiate it. Because otherwise, you're completely overwhelmed with self. So an antidote for ungratefulness, I think, is counting your blessings. And I, for one I am absolutely confident that I don't do that enough. 
I think a, a third way um, that's an antidote for um, ungratefulness is to serve. Now, I don't mean just serve, serve. I, can, can I hone in a little bit here? What I mean is to ask, what has God given me? In terms of my gifts, what has God given me that I can use for others? How am I positioned in terms of my giftedness to serve others? Let me suggest that if you know what your giftedness is and you are not exercising your giftedness, you're not being very grateful. Um, this is going to kind of cut close, right? Uh, Brian will applaud it, though. If you've got the gift to sing and you're not singing and the opportunity is there, is that gratefulness? It occurred to me a long time ago when I didn't want to preach. That even though I'm not the greatest, I do have the gift of preaching. And for me not to do it would be very ungrateful. You have your own gifts. Use them. It's a form of gratitude. Fourth, I, I think that one of the ways that we um, find an antidote to ungratefulness is to basically humble ourselves before the Lord. Let me read you a passage. It, it interestingly enough, comes right after this passage. We were in Luke 17, and by the time you get to Luke 18, Luke decides to place this story in the context. It goes like this. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week, more than me, and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. Almost sounds like the leper, doesn't it? at a distance, stood at a distance, and we'd not even look up to heaven. Because that would have been the typical way to pray. He couldn't even bring himself to do it. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I think it's a great inhibitor of gratitude to hold on to your pride. And I think it's a great antidote to ungratefulness to humble yourself before God. To refuse to judge others 
to refuse to consider yourself better than others? That's humility before God. And that's what God calls us to. And if you do that, you've got to be grateful. When you realize that you're not so good and all the goodness comes from God, that just creates gratitude, doesn't it? A final comment relates to this man and to us. It's this. Have you come to Jesus for partial healing or complete healing? Have you looked at um, this Jesus religion thing? And said, just heal me. Give me a better life. Make me a better person. I'm not quite as good as I want to be. Or have you said to Jesus, I understand what you want from me. You want all of me. I'm going in, Lord, for the full treatment. I'm not just going to dance around the edges and try to get a little bit of the benefit. I want all of you. I want to completely surrender. I want to die to self and live to you. Have you let Jesus do all he wants to do in your life? Or are you just shouting that to him from a distance? Lord, just fix this. I'll take care of the rest. That's not what Jesus wants to do. He wants to heal you completely. He wants to get deep down into the fibers of your being and transform you from the inside out. So draw near completely to Jesus in gratitude and humility and find the deepest needs of your heart met. Let's pray. Lord, we're kind of halfway people. We've got to admit it. We think we understand what we need and we say, here it is, just fix that. And, and part of that, Lord, is just foolishness and pride on our own side of things. We think we understand fully our need and we don't. So we're asking you, Lord, to open up the eyes of our hearts so we can understand how much we need you. I mean, for those of us who have been following you for many years, the lesson comes to us new every morning. We need you every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like yours can be afford. I need you, oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. Be gracious now, my Savior, and come completely to me. So, Lord, we pray that you will, you will help us to understand our deep need and to pray in some fashion that prayer and that you will uh, heal us completely. We know that that kind of complete healing comes only because we open our hearts completely and that kind of complete healing requires that we continue to surrender because we know there's more you need to do in our lives. So we pray you'll give us the, the wisdom to 
to surrender and to follow. Lord, I especially pray for that person who's sort of out there on the edge of this thing called the Jesus religion. <laughs> it's pretty obvious to that person that you're special. It's pretty obvious to that person that you're the Savior of the world. It's pretty obvious to that person that they have a need that only you can meet. But there may be some, Lord, who are just like the nine, just wanting something, but they don't want you entirely. They want you to fix it, but they, they want you to stay a little bit at a distance and give them more freedom. They don't want to completely surrender, Lord. And so I pray for that person this morning that they will find the moment of grace and faith to fully surrender and to turn themselves over to you because that's the only way we find true life. And we're so grateful, Lord, that that eternal gift of eternal life comes through Jesus alone. And so we pray it will be uh, part of our life today. Lord, we pray that you will uh, give us the inclination and the deep desire to follow you completely. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.